Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 4 and read to verse 17. And we've uh, not making tremendous progress through the book of Genesis so far. So if you're looking at sheer number of verses over the number of weeks that we've been preaching, but our intent is for understanding and from understanding of the knowledge of the glory of God that ultimately would then do that. It would lead us to glory in him and praise him for all that he is and his character and his nature and for his goodness. And so, uh, but we will, we promise we're going to uh, pick up and we're, uh, we won't finish chapter two today because uh, our intent, our theme this morning is going to be creation, man, and work. And we want to begin to see how those are all tying together and the very, the very uh, setting has been set. And we'll hopefully walk through some of that to where we are going from the creation of the cosmos and all that is entailed to then driving down to mankind upon which will take us then through the end of this book. And then, yes, to the end of the Bible even. And so God is establishing uh, the origins, helping us to be able to understand that. And so if you have a copy of the notes as well that's in the bulletin, I encourage you to take those out, and we'll begin walking through those. And we basically have five blanks to fill in, one actually in the opening uh, section, and then four subpoints as we're walking through our theme this morning. So we won't have a lot to cover in a sense of you filling in the blanks, but there's a lot to cover in the context of um, this passage, and this is where it's always the pastor's difficulty of how much to share, right? There's the old adage and story where young pastors come, and they begin to get up to preach, and uh, man, he began, and he had a, a somewhat of a general outline of where he wanted to head, and meanwhile, he's throwing in verses from all over the Bible, and he's beginning to preach all these other portions and sections, and after the sermon was over, and it went well over the time that was allotted to him, and uh, one of the older members come up to him after the service, and he says, well, how do you think you did today? And he says, well, brother, I, I tell you, uh, I, was, um, I was mandated to feed the sheep and to be able to feed, uh, feed God's people. And uh, the older gentleman said, yes, but he wasn't intended to feed us all that you had to be able to offer in one setting, right? So we want to be fed over segments of time. And so with that being said, the intent is to try to be honest with the text that we're in, which is going to be verses 4 through 17, uh, first and foremost. And then to bring application to that, and uh, we would not have uh, false advertising not to incorporate a ton of other things into it. And so I intend to stay with that today, but even in those verses, it can be difficult to the things that you want to be able to bring out for the the time that we have. And so uh, my intent is to, you'll have a good understanding enough to be able to receive it and reproduce it in the lives of other people and to help us as well to begin to see how the Bible ties together. So all that by way of introduction, let me read Genesis 2. 4 through 17, and then we're going to dive into our text this morning, which I believe will be a tremendous aid and help to us as we begin to set the stage for the remainder of the book. Quick disclaimer as I read, though, one thing that is oftentimes a challenge to the listener, not so much the the preacher can be for the preacher too, but I think more so for the listener, is that uh, the question that uh, is intended many times to be answered is, so what, right? So why is this an application to me? As if, like, how will this help me tomorrow morning 
at the office? How will this help me tomorrow morning with my children? How will this help me with lost family members? How will this help me with coworkers and neighbors and classmates and so on and all the various circles that we're in? And the reality is what we don't want to do is ever to make the Bible about us as its primary emphasis. Yes, man is the, the, uh, the uh, climax of God's creation, right? And we're going to see that as he's going to now map out an, an entire chapter specifically about, specifically about man in the context even the greater creation. But what's most important is God and what is God doing and why did God create man to begin with when he didn't need us. And so we begin to walk through this as we're thinking through this. Let's not miss the greater narrative Right, which is this is the setting and the origins of where everything's going to go, so that God could then send Christ and the glory of Christ could be on display because He will not Christ, He will not sin, He will perfectly obey God, He will die in our stead, and then give us the hope, which is the so what that we need. So in this particular passage, you may look at this and begin to say, right, "There's a point, and there's a point." Hopefully, you're going to see instances about your vocation and work, and and begin to learn things that will help you in your day to day tasks. But let's not miss the big meta-narrative, right? which is the big piece of this, is that God established all this, and we need to get the beginning right so that we can see how God is, has been working, is currently working, and will continue to be working in the context of his people. Does that make sense? And so I'll, Sometimes it's like, I just need something that I can hang my hat on this week, and hopefully there will be some of those in the context of this. But the greatest thing you can hang your hat on is, we have a great God. That's what we need to hang our hats on. And so I want us to be able to see this. And as you take this and you begin to share with other people, it's not going to be, uh, not to be crude, I'll use the word glamorous. Many times people say, well, it's not sexy. It's not glamorous. But it's what's most important. It's the pillars that we need to be able to have so that we can begin to answer the questions. Because what happens with all of the trendy stuff is that it doesn't stand the test of time, right? It doesn't give answers to the people who are really legitimately hurting and looking for for answers that mean something, that last. And this is the foundations that we need. And so hopefully that will be a help to us. So Genesis 2, beginning verse 4 through verse 17. The Bible reads this. The Lord of the Lord says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree, was, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is, is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, sh- you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, eat of it you shall surely die. 
Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the context of this chapter upon which uh, there is no lack of debate as it relates to how this fits in and how this ties to um, create the creation account and the way people interpret and mostly misinterpret how this passage is used, how it's being viewed and rendered. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us to see it for what it is, help us to see it with your intent behind it and how it plays out in the context of the greater narrative and how the Bible explains this and helps us to understand it. From there, I pray, Lord, that we would have a better understanding of you and of your uh, creation power, of your character and of your nature and all that you do, which, was, which is good. And from that, Lord, it may it set the stage for the coming weeks as we look at marriage and then we look at the, the uh, fall of man and the curse of sin and then how that will then play out through the rest of the Bible and, uh, and a, a desire to see that remedy, to see that fixed, to see a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth and where that finally comes to its culmination at the book of Revelation. And so, Lord, this chapter is extremely important and so I pray you would help us to see it. And then in the midst of that, yes, there's a variety of applications and things that we could begin to see uh, today and then clearly tomorrow as we look at, or not tomorrow, but next Sunday as we look at marriage and the relationship of male and female. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, grant great clarity to us. And, Lord, I pray that when we leave today, it would not be that we heard a good sermon or a boring sermon, but that we saw you. And as a result, by beholding you, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold Christ and his coming. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as your theme walks you through creation, man, and work, here's where we're going to begin. That's where you can be filling in your first blank in your outline in the bolded section or bolded sentence. In this section of Scripture, which is verse 4 through 17 of chapter 2, the text grants the explanation and setting for the generations of man. So the text is going to help us to begin to see the explanation and the very setting for the generations of man. So this is where we see in verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, right? And so this is important because as we begin to walk through this, this section is basically going to recount to us with the, uh, the day six account, if you will, that specific drill in from the bigger uh, picture of the creation of the cosmos as it was beginning just with light and that there be light. And then there was a separation of a light and darkness where you have your first day and your, your morning and evening. And then all the, the, the earth being formed and the separation and creating of the expanse. And you see all that we saw in chapter one as it's walking through one through chapter 2, verse 3, when it walks through the seven days of creation, you're seeing kind of the, the big picture panoramic view of all seven days. So what do you have? You have the creation of all things, right? And so you have this big kind of Google Earth. You've been zoomed out, and now you kind of see the whole entire planet with all the, the stars and the moon and the sun and a variety of other. You just see the, the cosmos. You see the galaxy. But what can you not see from the Google Earth view as we zoom out? What can you not see? Man, right? We're way, too, we're way too far out to be able to zoom in to understand the climax of God's creation, right? What is the superior piece of what he's creating that he's going to relate to man, he's going to interact, interact with man, that ultimately the God-man was going to come and was going to redeem mankind. You can't see man from there. And so ultimately we see all that the earth contains, 
But then what God desires for us to do and what he has given Moses to be able to help us to be able to see is now that we're going to zoom in to street level, right? And we're going to see 1111 Eden Avenue, right? Or Eden Garden, the Garden of Eden. We're going to see that street corner where, where Adam, and Eve, Adam and Eve are going to live and we're going to see them specifically, right? And so this is what we're doing. Now, many then try to tie this passage in to be able to talk about this is a second a creation account, completely different from day six. And now they're going to try to tie that in with a variety of their theories, day theory, gap theory, and a variety of other things that they're going to try to tie this in, that this is now a secondary account. And this is where then you have these other variations of creatures that eventually model into, and eventually you have um, mankind, Adam and Eve, and you begin to see the progression of how that grows. So that's not. This is simply from Google Earth, uh, zoomed in to the street level to be able to see what's taking place here. And so you see that even in the way it's written. It's, it was used by literary device, but then also specifically, these are the regenerations of the heavens and the earth, right? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1. But it's interesting, by the end of verse 4, those flip-flop, right? And it says, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, right? So now we're zooming in to be able to see earth level, right? The ground level of this, begin to see mankind being put on display. And so this is where we're going to walk through. The section that then explains the generations. And so these generations, as I said before, are now going to be drilling down to what's going to be the entire book of what's going to be about. And the history of mankind is going to be about, ultimately, it's going to be fulfilled in the new heaven and new earth where God gathers his people around his throne and we worship him to forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll be with him with, with, uh, where the world was recreated the way it should have been um, before the fall or the way it was the way it was before the fall and the way it should be after the fall if uh, uh, once sin is being dealt with and it will be fully removed. And so ultimately, this is where we find ourselves. So from verse 4... All the way through Genesis chapter 50 is going to be now drilling down to the generations of people. This is why it says that. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So our primary focal point from here on out to the remainder of the Bible is focusing in on people. Not that chapter 1 wasn't doing that as well, but ultimately it was included with all the other days of creation, right? So it's where our primary thing, our primary section is going to be about. So with that being said, first point, the creation of man, right? So if this is going to give the explanation and setting for the generations of man, then we have to see man created. And we also had that, we saw that before. Now we're going to see it specifically, right? And so what, what do we begin to see that was different? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, it just says he created them male and female, Right? And it's just all lumped in together. What do we know? And what you already know, we didn't even covered it there. But what do we know about creation? Were they created at the same time? Were they like biological twins and they came out of the womb exactly the same time, right? Well, there was no womb to come out of, right? They were created from dirt. And so how were they created? Who was created first? Man, right? Adam. And so we're going to begin to walk through the progression, which then sets the stage for society, which sets the stage for leadership, which sets the stage for marriage, and so as we're walking through these things, this is why the origins are so important. Either you believe it or you don't. And you can say, I'm a Christian and I don't believe it, right? And that would be a problem, right? So we have to believe what the Word of God tells us. And so this is no small matter. So we're going to begin to look at this. This is why we need to zoom in, to see a much closer understanding of how God created and why God created. So we understand the very character and nature of God. Because why? I never thought... I would live in a society where we couldn't distinguish between male and female. 
And you'll be able to say distinguish. Well, not just that. Other times you can tell if they were male and female, they could cut their hair short and all this. No, I'm not talking about that. I mean, literally distinguish from their physical body parts when God had made it obvious that this is how you distinguish male and female, right? And this is the world we live in. And so these passages are important. We talk about marriage and how you would support or not support certain marriages. Where do we glean that information from? Well, clearly from passages like Genesis chapter 2. And so these are very, very important, very hot topics within our current culture today. And so uh, I don't feel bad in the sense of having to communicate truth because why? I didn't create it. I'm just a herald that explains it. And I believe it without question, but it's, I don't take personal offense when people don't buy it because why? It's not mine. It didn't originate with me. Now, it's mine that I have been, God has granted me his grace to, to know him and to understand him and love him and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit to interpret his word accurately. And so I fully embrace his truth, but it's his truth, not mine. It originated with him, not with me. And so as we stand, we're going to have to be able to stand firm based upon God's truth. And so that's why we need to be able to understand this particular passage. So we're going to then focus our attention on the generations that follow. Here's what we begin to see. It says that ultimately this is when the generations were created. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And so ultimately God is going, was in the process of creating. He was creating. And we see prior to that he had created even four day six that he had created plants and uh, he was already creating animals and a variety of other things as we even move into day six. And prior, there were certain uh, animals created uh, prior to day six even as we begin to see the birds and the, and the fish. But ultimately, it says here, there were no small plants and there was no, uh, 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 there was no bush in the field, no small plants. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. So this is going to give us some clues here to what's taking place. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man from a uh, man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Well, it does several things here. It begins to tell us. It's going to begin to even give, give us some understanding of what the earth was like. And so ultimately, there were going to be additional bushes. There were going to be additional plants that was going to be tied to uh, rain. It was going to be tied to uh, man's working the field, and so ultimately there was going to be things that God was going to produce, but ultimately it was going to be uh, man's responsibility that he was going to need to cultivate the ground, and so uh, there's some things that we're going to see that we'll see more of here in just a moment as we look at uh, um, the, the, uh, the area upon which man was created in, but ultimately as we're now looking at this, you see that ultimately there was a mist that was going, so there, because there was no rain, there was a mist that was flowing up uh, from the land that was going to water the whole face of the earth, and then ultimately from that, and in that time, God then is going to form man out of dust, right? Which is interesting, right? So we were talking about from the heavens to the earth, from the earth to the heavens, you're seeing who's in between that? Mankind, right? And so, and therefore, God is the one who over is over everything. But then as we're going to see in just a moment, what did God then give man to do? Work the earth, fill the earth, have dominion over the earth, right? And so from the earth, man's going to be created. So it's being created by God, which would be a picture of the heavens. It's being created out of the earth, which is a picture of the dust. And so you here have a, a uh, in-between that's going to be walking and it's going to be created to be formed, which is mankind. So of the dust is where man will is be created from. And from dust is where, or back to dust is where man will end after we die, as far as at least this earthly tent. Um, there will eventually be a house, as Second Corinthians tells us, 
when we get our glorified bodies, which will never perish, but ultimately in the interim, these temporal bodies will return to dust. And so ultimately, he takes us from the ground, begins to mold us as clay, which is the imagery we constantly see in the New Testament. It cannot, the, the potter communicate to the clay what he desires the clay to do and what he desires for the clay to, to be. And so ultimately from that, we begin to see that he's, he's, he's molding us, he's making us, he's creating us, and then he breathes into our nostrils the breath of life. He makes us come alive, right? This is the same picture, same imagery we see in Ezekiel 37, where he prophet, tells the prophet Ezekiel, can these dry bones live, right? And so then prophesy to them. And then it stands, he does, and he obeys the Lord, and he says, I don't know if they can live. You, you know, so you, you tell me if they're going to be able to live. I trust you and what you're going to say. And so then he tells them to prophesy, he does, and they stand into them, and then he tells them to breathe upon them, right? They're, they're up, they're upright, but they're not alive yet. And so they're not, uh, they're not, they're not physically alive, and so uh, ultimately from there, they need the breath of life. And this is what then makes us living creatures. And so from there, this is the creation of man. We begin to see that begin to take place. And so ultimately, there, from the, uh, the Lord formed what? The man, right? And we don't see any description of woman yet. She's coming, and we won't get there yet today. We'll get there next week, but God creates Man, he's going to be called Adam, and so we're going to begin to see that uh, soon. But ultimately, we see that there is a creation of a man from dust, and God gives him life. So very first, we're seeing the creation of man. So once again, simple recounting with a more uh, explicit uh, view of mankind that gets even more detailed than what we saw in Genesis 1, right? We're trying to do the whole panoramic view of all creation you get all the animals, all the kinds, all the setting to get the, the earth created, the universe created. And so we see that huge panoramic view. And then now we're zooming in to see mankind. And so far, we only see one male creation. So now we see the creation of man. Then we see the location of man, verses 8 through 14. So where did God put him, right? You begin to think through that process and go, well, he could have put him anywhere. He could have located him in any portion of of the world, so where is he? And ultimately, we see where God places them in verse eight. And the Lord God, and this is interesting, um, as you're beginning to walk through these passages, where you're seeing, um, and it happened in the previous section. I didn't draw your attention to it, but the terms Lord God uh, already popping up, not just God in the beginning. God created, right? Just uh, uh, God in the heavens. Now we're beginning to see the Lord Yahweh is the one who's now on the scene, and so you're seeing the. Dis- uh, from Moses' perspective, uh, that he already trusts him as the I am, right? He is uh, the one. So you think about Moses, and this is where uh, they, God gives Moses his name. You're going to see that be more explicit in how God gave that, but even in his er- earlier writings, how Moses is already uh, yielding to him as his Lord, right? And so the Lord God, as you've already seen it pop up, is in verse 5 and verse 7, now again in verse 8 and again in verse 9, uh, the Lord God. And so it says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, in the east, the east of what, right? Where are you drawing east from? Like, where is your origin for where east is, right? And so a couple of things as far as explanations uh, to be able to think about what does it mean as far as in the east, uh, the relocation of two different ways that can be described or communicated. One would be from the vantage point. Uh, of God's always looking east in the sense of like even the temple was facing facing east 
And so it was a, a reference to the tabernacle, uh, it could be, or from the tabernacle, God's heart would be in there, that from the tabernacle it would be east of where the tabernacle would eventually be one day, or, or from the viewed vantage point that the tabernacle is always facing east. But the reality here is uh, the explanations that are giving that would be as it relates to the east, facing the east uh, as it relates to this location. And it says, there he put the man whom he had formed. Once again, singular. The single man that was there, the only man, Adam, upon which he had created, this was going to be the location. So what do we know about the location? Ultimately, there was going to be this no bush or, uh, or small plant that had, had sprung up yet. In that, in that sense, there were some specific things that were going to be created they were going to begin to do that he was going to come. Uh, some when rain happened, which would... Um, uh, wouldn't come, as we know, until after sin. And so there's going to be some things that's related to sin that's going to be coming, that's going to ha- he's going to have to work and he's going to have to till. But even prior to sin, there's going to be things that he would need to work and till, and we'll see that coming up. But ultimately, he put him there to work it. And so from the ground, there would be water that would be um, providing the, the, ne- the necessity that the, the current plants would need. And so he places him there. What else do we know about the garden? Verse 9. Uh, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And isn't that interesting? You could think simply God's design was simply for sustenance, right? He can plant anything. And there's some ugly plants. There's some ugly trees. There's on, on our property, maybe on your property, there's certain trees that are not pleasant to the sight, right? And uh, now some of that, we're looking at it from the curse of sin, right? So there was a all that God made was good, and it was very good, as we've already seen all throughout the, the Genesis 1. And we see that it was good, 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 and as you get to the end of Genesis 1, and behold, it was very good. So clearly, God does good things. But even still, even prior to the fall, there's things that have a greater beauty than others, right? It was good to the sight. And so you see that, man, God in His graciousness understands there's, uh, there is uh, tangible understandings as far as how we would think things are beautiful, now, that can be a subject that gets challenged all the time, right? And that ultimately there's, form, there's beauty in every form. But the reality is, is that as humans, as creatures, we make, uh, yes, subjective in certain ways, but ultimately there's a cri- criterion, and many times we all possess those things, even if it's unspoken, that this is more attractive than other things, right? And so even the Bible is picking up on that and understands that ultimately that every tree that is pleasant to the sight and it's good for food. It could simply, God just needed to make sure that it, it was going to sustain them and give them all the nutrients they needed to flourish, right? But that wasn't all God's intent. Yes, we're going to give them every tree that was needed that was going to be good for food. But then how good and gracious is our God? It's not just that it was good for food, but he created us in a manner that we understand beauty and that we can glory him in beauty and we can enjoy beauty. And so he's even going to grant us trees that are not simply good for food, but are pleasant to the sight. That's amazing. That's, that's tremendous. And so we begin to see, so we're in the garden, garden called Eden. Um, we're not in the garden. Adam's in the garden and in a place called Eden. It's uh, in the east. And ultimately, there's water springing up. And it's, it's providing um, uh, the sustenance that the world needs to be able to, to uh, provide life and to be able to uh, provide um, uh, the water is to sustain the even plant life. And so in and from there, trees that are growing up that God provides. Every tree that was pleasant to sight and good for food is now placed in this garden. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, these are going to be important to us. We're going to see in chapter 3 
that these are going to become major, major players in our theme that we're moving forward in, right? And so the tree of life was what was going to sustain life, even after there's the fall, uh, and they had sinned. The intent is we've got to get them out of the garden because now in their sin state, if they eat the tree of, the, of tree of life, they're going to be perpetually in a state of sin. And so that's why they get expelled from the garden. And so we're going to see that coming up. And so the tree of life was going to sustain life, and it was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, from the knowledge of good and evil, what does that mean? And there's all kinds of, as I was reading through a variety of different commentaries, a variety of things that would that people want to describe what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about. And because you're going to get to the end of next week uh, portion of Scripture, it ends, and this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, and you're going to look at it and you're going to say, you're a male, I know why you think that, but it's not what you think. Chapter 2, verse 25, get there, look at it, read it, and I want you to see this because it's going to be one person's explanation behind this. And uh, it's not the accurate uh, rendering, but you're going to see how a variety of things work and how people try to read things and, and try to figure out what the Bible's saying and maybe miss the entire point. Verse 25 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says this, And the man and his wife, now you're seeing uh, Eve has been created, woman, and the man, the man and his wife, and so you see marriage is clearly implied there, right? So you're seeing marriage take place because it calls him his what? Not girlfriend, not simply woman. What's it called? Wife, right? And so the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, right? Now in this, we're walking through this, this process uh, this lack of shame is there, and then ultimately the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes are going to be opened, and then their eyes are open, they immediately sense shame. And so many then say that ultimately the knowledge of good and evil has primarily to do with uh, sex. And so ultimately this is the foundation, is this, this knowledge of good things and bad things, knowledge of good, right, and wrong, good and evil, is related to sex. And so, and I think that's a poor understanding of what the primary, and they're going to give you a variety of reasons ultimately, um, they began to have enmity with one another, and they wanted to clothe themselves, and they were shameful of one another, and a variety of other things. And I say, it's there. I see it's in the text. I know they weren't naked, and they weren't ashamed. They were naked. They weren't ashamed. Now they realize they're naked, and they are ashamed. And the reality behind all this is, is ultimately they were already man and woman. It had already been communicated about reproducing, right? That's what Genesis 1 is already telling us. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. All right? There's a process for that, and so... Uh, they, they clearly get it. They understand it. And so it wasn't the reality of sex being introduced into this whole process. And so then many others so could give a variety of other themes of what this begins to mean. The primary theme here as far as the knowledge of good and evil was the reality of man isn't autonomous in and of themselves. And so um, ultimately man was going to know evil when man disobeys God, right? And so where we're going to get in just a moment. But ultimately this knowledge of things is going to be you're going to know what's good, and at this point, everything is good and very good, right? And then they're going to disobey God, and they're going to know evil experientially. They're going to begin to see this. Some interpret. I'll give you another interpretation as far as how this is going to run. The evil uh, is almost like a, an episode. I think it, if I got my, my Disney movies ready, and if you're a boycotter of Disney, I'm not giving proponents. I'm giving you an illustration, all right? So I'm not a proponent saying... Uh, you should endorse all Disney movies. I'm simply giving you, if I, I'm not mistaken, isn't it Snow White where the, the, the evil villain gives the apple and wants Snow White to eat the apple and the apple was poisonous? Is that, am I got my right Disney movie? Okay, just making sure I'm tracking with you guys. And so now you're pointing out, you're like, ah, oh, see the people nodding. They're the Disney fans. We got, you know, whatever. All right, so Disney, uh, Disney theme. And so many would think that the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a poisonous fruit. 
And that was why they were, as they're going to receive later on, the, pro, the, uh, the uh, warning that they're going to die when you eat it. That God put in the garden a poisonous fruit that when you partake in it, kills you. Now, could that be right? Could that be a theme? Well, it's clearly a, a theory. The problem with that is, what did God say as he defined his creation? Over and over and over. We've already mentioned it several times. It was what? Good. And Adjective, very good, right? So as we're thinking through this process, that it's very good. I don't think poisonous fruit or poisonous apples, as many times the fruit's portrayed in your, your kids' books and, and, and things, uh, that it was a poisonous fruit or as poisonous apples is what was intended behind the, the knowledge of good and evil. Simply that man is not autonomous. Man was given a creator, and ultimately in that creation, they are held responsible to their creator. We're creation, unless we think too highly of ourselves, that we think that we now are God and have his knowledge, that ultimately we should understand that we are accountable to someone and we're accountable to God. And so in that, he places the knowledge, the two trees in the midst of all the other trees that were there, the tree of, the, uh, tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that wasn't the only two trees, right? What other trees that we already, the Bible already told us about that we've already read? What other types of trees? Pleasant for the eyes and good for food, right? So when you begin to think about what God put there, it wasn't that it was all of these um, uh, negative things that he wants them to be able to uh, say no to this and 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 no to this. No, simply it was a, 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 a glorious place with this one tree that they will be forbidden from, which we'll see in just a moment. So they had all that they needed. Everything that pertained to life and godliness was already provided for them, Right? And then verse 10, you begin to see more explanation about this, which then gives us some insight potentially to where uh, the Garden of Eden used to be, right? And so verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx and the onyx stone are there, right? So you begin to see that it's a place that has rich in gold, and not just any gold, gold that was very good, right? So gold that was going to be very beneficial. So it was pure gold is what it's communicating there. And then you see onyx stones, and so onyx stones are even used throughout the Bible. It's one of the jewels that would be tied into the uh, high priest garments. And so you see an onyx stone, and then bedellium. And so bedellium is uh, potentially referencing stones here, because uh, it talks about the bedellium and the onyx stone are there. And so it could be referencing a, a uh, uh, stone because you have gold, which would be a stone. You see onyx, which would be a stone. And so bedellium could be a stone. It could also be uh, simply a fragrance. And so uh, a fragrance that would smell good that would be there. Regardless, these were all valuable things. And so ultimately you begin to see that. Do we know exactly where that is? Not uh, for certain that we know where that is. It's, it's referenced in other locations of gold. Uh, in other sections, but not that particular, not Havilah in and of itself. And so we're not 100% sure where that is. The name of the second river then is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And so it's going to give us some insights to where that would be. And then the land, the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the river Euphrates. And so that particular time, Assyria and the Tigris would be, would be well known, and the Euphrates would be well known. And so ultimately, begins to give you some indication of where that would be, which potentially it would be the Mesopotamia area. And so as 
uh, variety of commentators and scholars would begin to communicate. But all that to be able to say, you see the creation of man, and now you see the location of man, and this is man in the garden. Which just leads us then to number three, the vocation of man. The vocation of man. And so he says then, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. And so as you begin to think through this, this is the instructions that God had given man. That ultimately, he was going to work. Now, this is interesting because when we think about work and how we describe work, we make it as if it's a bad thing, right? Um, uh, as, I'm, uh, as I work and I'm interacting with other people, it's interesting. And, and I understand the, the dynamic behind it, but it's interesting how people communicate even to other coworkers or even to their own boss. So they walk in and it's Friday. And, it, and if you do this, I'm not condemning you. I'm just bringing clarity to this because I think it is an indicator of how we view work. And we need to caution how we view work because work is not sin. Uh, it's not a sinful thing to do. Right? This is before sin entered the world and God put man in the garden to work it. Right? And so as we think through this, this is really important as we walk through this and think this. But I hear this many times and it's the, the phrase TGIF, thank God it's Friday. Well, why are we thanking God it's Friday? Why don't we don't thank God it's Monday? Right? Why do we thank God when it's, and we don't thank God when it's Wednesday, which is, and then why do we even call Wednesday hump day, right? So we think, well, what is that? Is that we run over things and, or, you know, we ride camels or what are we, what are we doing on Wednesday? Well, it's hump day because we're over the hump. We're now moving toward the weekend, right? And so we're, we're trying, we live for the weekend. And we need to think through that process is that ultimately, are we then honoring our God and our creator as Christians when we have that viewpoint? Now, to be able to think, I work a job, I work a job faithfully, I want to uh, honor, give an honest day's work for an honest day's wage, and so those are great things, the way we should be thinking about things. But the reality is, it's interesting, because when I walk into the office, or I'm communicating with people, and I'll be like, man, how are you this morning? Good, thank God it's Friday. And in my mindset, they'll even talk to their employers, and you may even talk to your employer and be like, thank God it's Friday. And you're like, how did you, just think about this for a moment, how do you think your employer thinks when you communicate Thank God it's Friday, and he's your employer, right? He pays your, or she pays your salary, and you're telling them, I cannot wait to get out of this place and go have my weekend to myself. I don't know if you thought through that, but that's not probably the wisest thing to be doing, right? To be able to say, I can't wait to get out of here, and I'm going to be out of here soon. And be away from you and be away from this work and this thing you called me to do. That's crazy when we think about it. Now, should you not enjoy your weekend and your, your, your time with your family and, and uh, other things that you want to be able to do? Yes and amen, and absolutely. But I want to challenge that a little bit for us to think a little bit deeper about what we're communicating, how we may view work, right? How we may view work. and may not view it the way the Bible should describe for us to view it. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to absolutely love everything that you do. But that's the reality with anything, right? Anything, even if it seems great to one person, may not be great to someone else. Some of this, man, I'm living for this and living for this opportunity. And then the other one, man, I'm dreading this and dreading this opportunity. I'm not looking forward to this or this opportunity. So we're thinking through these processes that ultimately, and even the same good or great thing over and over and over, we begin to disdain that, right? Uh, familiarity breeds contempt, as the old adage says, right? And so many times we look at that, and that's why then people struggle in marriage, right? Is that ultimately they begin to then... Uh, they're familiar with those things, and it doesn't seem exciting any longer, and they're not investing in it any longer. And so ultimately, familiarity can, can shouldn't, but can breed 
contempt. And so even great things can become mundane to us when we have them, right? You take us out of our venue and place you in India, place you in Haiti, place you in other locations, and all of a sudden you're going to be extremely grateful for a home that actually has walls that reach the ceiling to the floor, first and foremost. Be grateful for a roof of some sort, whether it's shingles or a tin roof or anything. You can be grateful for that rather than a thatch roof, right? Be grateful for literal windows and doors. Be grateful for bug spray, right? Uh, a variety of things. Grateful for running water, right? Refrigerators. And there's things that we have that we possess that ultimately that we take for granted and, and we don't think about. And so as we think about work, there's a lot of things that we do for work that other parts of the world aren't even at that yet. They're literally working to survive the day or working to survive the week, literally, food and water, right, to make it. And we, that's not a concern of ours, right? Uh, you may find it repulsive to drink out of a water hose that you would water your garden with, right? Um, but ultimately, that other parts of the world, they would be ecstatic to have that and to be able to drink from it. And so as we think through this, we think about work. God intended man to work even before sin. And so when you come to approach your job, now we're going to see sin, and we're going to see how sin affected work, and that then it trans- translates or transitions work to labor, right? And so there is a, a room for that, and there's room to be able to think that you can be put to a labor that's difficult, right? As you're going to see the children of Israel being put to forced labor in the book of Exodus. So there's clearly those types of things that, that can be handled. It can be very, very oppressive, but even still, we've got to be cautious about how we would approach things because ultimately God wants us to glory in the things that we do and do it unto him and not as unto man as Colossians tells us twice. It's the book of Ecclesiastes encourages us to do whatever your hand to do, uh, finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. And so here you see man being put in the garden to work it and to keep it. And so a couple of things that we're thinking through the word there is that, that's going to be translated work uh, is the same word that you begin to think it's, it can be used as you walk through the Old Testament, as it relates to the work that uh, uh, the priest would do in the temple, to serve, to serve, right? So they're here to serve the garden, to work it, to serve the garden in its, in its attempt. And so once again, you're going to see allusions here, uh, Eden being a picture of um, a pattern of maybe even the, as we even alluded to in, the, in verse 8, uh, to the temple, to the, to the tabernacle God, where God dwells, because why? Ultimately, God's going, as, after sin enters the world, God's going to interact with man in a specific way. He's going to dwell with man in a specific way. And then the way he's going to dwell with man is under certain rules, right? Under certain uh, ways he's going to interact with man, not in the same way he did in the Garden of Eden. And so you're going to see him. He's going to interact with him in the Holy of Holies. He's going to interact uh, with the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, as you begin to see uh, in the book of Exodus. And then ultimately the tabernacle is going to be one that you can set up and tear down because they're on the move. But eventually they land themselves in the land of promise. And then they move from the, tab- to the, the tabernacle to the temple, right? And then from the temple, you're going to see then God dwelt among us, as John, uh, John studied. We looked at that in John 1, that he dwelt, tabernacled amongst us, right? And then from there, uh, literally God was on the earth in the, in, in, and, uh, in the incarnation in Christ. And then ultimately, then he dies, he resurrects, he ascends back to heaven, and then now God dwells in us, and we are now his temple. Right? And so, but as we're walking through this, God dwelt with them. He walked with them in the cool of the day, as we're going to see here in the coming verses. 
not today, but in, in uh, uh, the following weeks. And so as we walk through this, this is God's interaction with them. And so God was there, and so he was there to serve it, like the, the priest would serve at the temple. He's supposed to be there to serve it. And so we begin to think about that. Your responsibilities practically as a, as a worker is that ultimately you have an opportunity to serve, not in the same exact way because here, once again, sin enters the world, it alters things. But when you begin to think about your responsibility in the context of the priesthood of believers is what we begin to talk about, that ultimately the leaders within the context of their home, that we're all priests and kings, and so uh, under Christ and in Christ, and ultimately that we're there to be able to represent Christ. And so when you begin to look at the commands that's given even in Matthew 5, that we'd be the light of the world and we'd be the salt of the earth, you think about those processes, are you salt and are you light with your attitude to how you serve at your work? And that can be challenging, right? Because it's really easy to fall into grumblers and complainers uh, around the water cooler. And they only grumble and to complain about what you do and about how bad things are and how things need to improve as if they were the boss that things would be so much better, Right? And it's not always the case. It could be the case. You can operate by biblical principles. But here's the reality. You're grumbling, not you personally, but the individuals who will be grumbling and complaining aren't helping the cause anyway, right? That's creating factions and divisions. And literally, the book of 1 Corinthians has an entire chapter walking through how the children of Israel did that in the wilderness and how God hated it, and, and they died there. And it was for our warning, our admonition in the New Testament that we wouldn't be like them. And so when we think about that, we need to be very careful, number one, how we view work and understand our role at work. That you have the great opportunity and potential to work for God, not maybe your horrible boss. Right? I don't have a horrible boss, but I'm saying, you know, because our boss is in here, so I want to be careful. I don't have a horrible boss. But if you have a horrible boss, it can be very easy to look at that and go and think, man, this is bad, and, and, this, and they may be a person that needs your prayers and needs your instruction, needs your encouragement, but ultimately it should not and, and doesn't have to lead you to sin. And so we begin to think through this process and we begin to work with it. I mean, then ultimately you may not leave that job, right? Especially if they're asking you to do things that are unethical and immoral. And so there might be a point in time where you're like, I can't work for you any longer, and that's fine. But if not, then the reality is that you, we need, you need to be, we need to be, all of us, salt and light in the, in the venues that God places us. And so here, how do you then serve? How do you work, serve the Lord, work it, right? Wherever the, the land that you've been placed, wherever the vocation that you've been given, that you can work it as unto the Lord, that you can serve the Lord. So that's what the word means. And then to keep it, to guard it, to protect it, right? And so it's the intent behind this is that you're going to work it, you're going to serve it, you're going to keep it, you're going to guard it, you're going to protect it. And so as you're thinking through those aspects of it, how then do you guard it and keep it and protect it? Let me tell you some simple, tangible, practical ways to guard it, right? Watch what you say. I've kind of alluded to that as far as serve, but how, watch how you communicate about coworkers. Watch how you communicate. Now, listen, this is read into this text a little bit because there was no coworkers. <laughs> there, was no, there was no human boss at this time. It was a garden. So uh, there are some differences, but as far as, uh, direct applications, I think we can pull from this. It can be gleaned from other texts throughout the Bible. Uh, our communication is extremely important. How we talk about the things that we do. How do we communicate about the jobs that we have? Why we have those jobs? Ultimately, God, in perfect creation, 
apart from sin, instructed and gave instructions for man to work, right? Now, back before I get to the applications, imagine how opposite that is, opposite that is to us and a very wealthy nation with very uh, um, lofty goals about arriving at a place where you don't have to work any longer. We live for the golden years, and the golden years would be retirement, right? What I've seen most often, though, the guys, the individuals, I say guys, this in the general, plural, mankind type of guys, not just men, but the individuals, the mankind I've seen that seem to be the most flourishing are those who work the longest. That doesn't mean they're not uh, monetarily, financially set and secure, uh, and they could retire, but the reality is just to get on your um, your whatever the different types of campers are, and just drive and go see the nation and go see the world and not do anything the rest of your life isn't what is the best uh, usage, I think, of your time. One, for the glory of God. Two, for how do you be faithful to a faith family, right? Do not forsake the sin of the saints. It's kind of hard to do that when you're all over America, every different stop every single day. How do you obey biblical commands that come into the context of the Bible, uh, being a disciple maker? Uh, but then even then, that the vocation that you can be granted. Now, it doesn't say that you have retired, that you're doing something that's sinful. Communication is, it seems like, ultimately having purpose behind it, that could you then use those golden ages with the finance you'd be given to honor the Lord with it? And how could you do that and be creative with that, right? In the context of a local assembly, how can you do that and do that well? And so how do we keep it? We want to be guard what we say, right? Think about how we communicate about our coworkers, our employees, employer or employee if you're the, the boss and so we think about a variety of ways how do we communicate uh, to others how do you include um, uh, whether customers i've been in a variety of, of locations man especially before i went into ministry when i was much younger and uh, uh it was in some of that was in retail as well and uh the way people would talk about customers and the customers would be like with an earshot of what they were able to communicate and it's almost like they wanted the customer to know how much disdain they had for them and i just thought just from a practical standpoint i wasn't the, the owner i wasn't the boss uh i was a manager in training i was at mit uh, i was a manager in training so as i was there learning to how to manage uh i just thought that's probably not good for business uh just thinking about that, like they're going to buy or not buy from us, and so now you've just offended them. They're probably not going to buy here, so probably not the smartest business move uh, when I was thinking about people, but even how that person or people would talk about customers, right? Now, you can have really bad customers. I'm not communicating that they don't exist. Uh, sometimes I am that person, and I don't like to be, but sometimes I'm the bad customer, uh, and so you think about that process. Sometimes you're the bad customer, but the reality is you're going to have that, but how do we then guard it, keep it, protect it, is how do we communicate, right? How do we honor God with our communication? Second, work ethic. Uh, man, I'm telling you, in our generation, uh, and I say generation as far as up-and-coming young people, work ethic seems to be a non-existent word. Uh, understand what work is and being able to work hard. My, just in my own context of my own family, and I don't try to use a ton of personal illustration, but just to give you context, uh, we try to work and work with our children and teach our children how to work, uh, and I think we've grown soft over time. Uh, you begin to look at other generations that, um, and how they viewed adulthood and even how they viewed uh, work. Uh, even some of the forefathers of our great nation that many would esteem would then not realize the history of them and the types of things that they did and the ages upon which they did it. And so I understand child labor laws and there can be sweatshops and can be very hard and difficult things. But I've been accused of overworking my own children in certain ways uh, and that they were defects would be called in. 
uh, on our behalf, jokingly in some senses, but then kind of trying to prove a point, until, let me say this, that individual needed work and then was all the, all, all the while happy to then ask for my children to come help them work at their location. And so I thought, what about these child labor laws that you were alluding to earlier? And so all that to be able to say is that uh, work ethic, learning to work diligently and to work effectively, even when you uh, may not either be given proper instruction or be able to encourage certain things to do, is like look for things to do to work a faithful day's labor, right? A faithful day's wage. And when we don't, you're not guarding it, you're not protecting it, when you're looking to do less for more. Right When the boss is gone and you decide to dip out a few minutes early, when you have property or protection that belong, or property that belongs to the, the establishment and they spent money to do and we just take pens or we take a variety of uh, instruments or things from there, and you, it's not helpful and it's not a good testimony. And you're not guarding and protecting the vocation that you've been granted. Right? And they seem small, but they build up over time to have a mindset where we all, myself included, can be, have an entitlement mentality that ultimately, my employer, my business owes me this. And it's wrong to have. And we should work, and we should work faithful, and we should work hard. We should be, Christians should be the best workers. Should be the hardest workers. To where you, you we should be the ones that employers don't want to lose. And even the old adage, right, the last one hired is the first one. Talk to me. The last one hired is the first one fired. So they would go, no, we're not playing that game. I'm keeping that person. Right? Why? Because we work as unto the Lord. Right? We don't work for ourselves. But that's the mindset. It's the mindset that can creep into my own heart that I'll constantly have to crucify. Right? If I, here's the question. Knowing that the Lord knows all that I do, and I'm supposed to be working for him, was that an honest day's work for my Lord? It was an honest day's work for my Lord. Did I work hard for the Lord today? Now, how do you balance that? How do you balance that? Because ultimately, uh, no individuals in this room, variety of individuals, there's lazy people here. Now, the balance is that, is that we can become workaholics and we can neglect the other commands that are given in Scripture. And so that's why there's other commands given in Scripture. <laughs> so those are good commands, right? That we should take care of our families, uh, we should love our wives, or we should love our children, and we should uh, love the body of Christ. And so there's balances to keep us from doing that, because why? Being with the body is a helpful reminder that uh, i got to take some time off of work, because why? The body needs me, and I need the body. i got to take some time off work, because why? My wife needs me, and I need my wife. There's things that will be given and taken in that relationship that the Bible will communicate that I need. I have instructions and mandates as a, as a minister, even as just a Christian, uh, that I should manage my household well, and so it's hard to manage my household, to know my children, to know what's going on in their lives if I'm never there and, know, and I do not know what's going on in the context of their life. And so the Bible is so wise. God is so good. God is so knowledgeable. He's so wise. He's all-knowing to know what we need. And so he puts us in a framework to help protect us. And so, yes, that's the caveat to keep us from working, to be, becoming workaholics, right, and to be the lover of money. But at the same time, as a nation... I think we're wanting more for less. And so this is a tremendous verse, just a single verse here, to help us begin to think about our vocations, what we're doing, that even before the fall, and I know the fall is going to alter that, it's going to alter how we interact with God, how we interact with each other, how we're going to interact with the world, uh, that's going to make it difficult. And ultimately, the curse of sin 
We all know all too well, if you ever do any work in gardening, you ever do any work in, around your property, uh, thorns and thistles and, and weeds pop up everywhere, right? And you're doing all this to work against the curse of sin. And so, yes, uh, it can be laborious. It can be labor and not simply just work. But ultimately, I think that we should be more grateful for the jobs that we have and be model employees. And so there's ways that we need to be serving at our work, right? And there's ways, serving the Lord at our work, and the ways we need to be guarding and protecting uh, uh, God's design for work at the places of our vocation, right? And so think through those places. Am I given an honest day's work for an honest day's wage? Am I, is my speech one that's becoming of a Christian and the people see me and know that I know the Lord and I love the Lord and I'm, and I'm not going to interact with ways and talk negative about things and try to be encouraging, right? And not... And both and. One, uh, simply it's to carry out the job that you've been given to do. I've, I've found in my own life over the history of my time, you try to be pleasant to everyone, it typically goes better for you. And I don't mean this to be self-serving, but if you're one that's like speaks negatively of people and then eventually at some point you're going to need the person you're negative about, they're not going to want to help you, right? So just practical, fleshly, in that sense, like it wouldn't be good. Now, biblically, does it mean your power? Be right with all men, right? Be at peace with all people. And so ultimately, you should not want to be at odds with anybody. But I found that ultimately, I'm, I don't typically try to find and, and create enemies. And so as I try to guard the things I say, guard my attitude, guard my actions, I want first and foremost to do it for the Lord. But then I want to be able to carry out my job and be able to uh, function in that way. And so it's over the course of time, it's been pretty easy by the grace of God, not, uh, because why? I'm always going to try to begin with, at least, to believe the best in people. They may prove me wrong, and it's happened at times. Um, some leads to firings, and some leads to uh, people moving and going to other locations and things. But ultimately, sometimes you're proven wrong, but if you want to believe the best in people and, and uh, trust them in that way and try to honor the Lord in that way until they remove all doubt, then ultimately, you typically go better for you. And so you, I try to work, serve in the manner that I can, that would honor the Lord. And then number two, I try to guard it and protect it and keep it. So that's the vocation of man. As you begin to look at Colossians 3, just, you can just write these down. Colossians 3, 17. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 are going to begin helping us to understand, even in the book of Colossians, as it relates to slaves with slave owners, uh, that it speaks specifically to slaves. They would honor the Lord, right, in the things that they're doing. Um, and so they may not have a good slave owner, uh, as a slave, but ultimately God was encouraging them uh, that they should work and keep uh, the vocations they have to God's glory and not to work as unto man, being man-pleasers, but to please the Lord. So there's the vocation of man. And then lastly, we're going to see the explanation and setting for the generations of man that will fall. We saw the creation of man, the location of man, which would be the Garden of Eden, the vocation of man, which they had a couple other slots that, that uh, being walked through. What was it intended to do to have dominion over the earth? and the animals that were in it, and to reproduce uh, themselves and to fill the earth. Uh, and then eventually you see, even in verse 19, that it, it showed that his, he had dominion and, and that he was going to be not just working the ground, um, but he was going to have dominion over the animals. He's going to name all the animals, right? And so verse 19 of chapter 2, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name right and so showing that he had dominion over these animals which was also part of his vocation and then it leads us to lastly the prohibition of man he's prohibited right and we kind of alluded to this before and so it's one prohibition 
uh, one thing he was commanded not to do, right? And so verse 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, only the man's here so far, still don't have female, we're going to get there next week. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, right? And so the one prohibition, which will then set the stage, that after a woman is created, uh, then you're going to see the institution of marriage and the creation of woman, and he has a helper and a helpmeet uh, to be able to walk him uh, through and to be able to help him reproduce. Then you're ultimately you're going to see then the serpent's going to arrive and it's going to then attack this very command, right? Command the first prohibition, one first thing he's commanded not to do. He was given some commands about things to do, right? Have dominion, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And so there was things that he was encouraged to do. Work the ground, uh, to work in the garden, to work it and to keep it. And so there were other commands he was given, but this is the first prohibition. This is the first thing that he's instructed not to do. And so of all things, eat every tree of the garden. It's all yours. But this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, the reality is we have tons of prohibitions now. Why? Because he did eat, right? And so ultimately there's a variety of things. The world has been cursed. It's fallen. And so there's a variety of commands that have to be given to us because of sin and that we're now born in sin and we desire to sin. We have an orientation to sin. And so the reality for this, this is the world that we currently live in. But at that particular time, one prohibition you have everything you need. You have a relationship with me. Uh, he's going to have a spouse uh, shortly. Everything I've given you to do, asked you to do, is good. Will you trust me and realize that I'm not withhold, withholding anything from you, but I'm ensuring that you understand your world and your place in this world that I, God, created, right? And that we would give God glory. Well, ultimately, here's what we know about even man and work in our day. When is it that things typically go bad for you and I? Is that when we think we know best and we know better and ultimately we, we don't trust the Lord in it. And so trust the Lord with your vocation. Trust the Lord with where your location, where God has you and what God has you doing. We would honor the Lord in those ways knowing that he's the one who's going to reward. And as the old saying goes, ultimately integrity is doing what is right when no one's looking and when everyone else is compromising. And so if that's in your vocation, if that's in your location, ultimately do what's right. Do what the Lord knows because ultimately he's the one who knows, who sees all things. In our small, small group lesson with just the elementary group, we were being reminded of Achan. And even though no one else besides probably Achan's family knew that he had stolen uh, the things that were devoted to destruction, uh, God knew it. And ultimately that truth became known. And so the warning for us is that God knows. And so integrity is knowing that and trusting God in that. And then when everyone else is compromising and when no one else is looking, we do what is right because it gives God glory. And so we've got the sage debt. We've got man created, still needing a helpmate, right? And it's part of the reason why he had to name every animal of the field. We'll talk about that next week. Why did he do that? Why is it in that section? We're going to walk through that. But he doesn't have a helpmate, but he's got a location, right? We've zoomed in from the Google Earth. We see uh, 11111, what was it? Eden Avenue. And so we've got Adam there. He's been given instructions. He's been given a command, right, several commands, one prohibition, and ultimately we're going to see next week uh, that he's going to find himself a bride 
But in that, that particular time, the instructions are for us. He's been given a command. And so how is he going to respond? And when he has a wife, how is she going to respond in the coming days to that command? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that we have a book. We have a Bible. We have your words that give us instruction, that help us to know why we exist. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.